And let's open up again to that uh, long passage that Judith so wonderfully read to us from uh, 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. I can't think of a better text to be preaching on this morning as we commission Christchurch Queens Ferry. It has so much to say to all of us as a church family here at Charlotte, to the new church family at Christchurch Queens Ferry, to Adam and David, the elders of the new church. And what a way to lead into it by hearing God's word and singing a song like that. Well, nobody likes a show-off, do they? We don't really like it when people uh, blow their own trumpet. Uh, even in a culture like ours, which really encourages us to take pride in our achievements and be, you know, to boast in our successes, it seems that there's a line and plenty of people cross it. Uh, I found that out this week because I'm such a good researcher that, that was a joke, by the way, that there are 17 different forms of bragging. That was one of them. Uh, I'll not give you them all, but there's a basic brag like Ross Fretton's boast in Alan Sugar's boardroom in 2017. I am very smart, an official genius. I'm statistically speaking smarter than pretty much anyone else in any room. There's the one-upmanship brag. Well, you know with the kind where your, your friend says, oh, I had a great curry from the Thai restaurant in Stockbridge at the weekend, and your friend says, oh, really, I haven't quite found anything quite like the food I had in Phuket. So I'm, it's the one-upmanship brag. Then there's the humble brag, like the guy who tweeted, I've just ruined my perfect grade by getting 96% in my test. Crying face, crying face, crying face. Well, it drives you mad, doesn't it? A bit of bragging. But in our passage today, we find the Apostle Paul doing some, well, some bragging of his own. But it's not a basic brag, a one-upmanship brag, or even a humble brag. I think this is an 18th form of bragging that you might call the brag to end all brags. It really is the perfect comeback to the boasts of the super apostles, uh, cleverly formed as a rhetorical parody of their own boasting. And Paul is really uncomfortable doing this. I, I'm sure you picked that up as we walk through that passage together, because in verse 1, 16, 21, 22 of chapter 11, and verse 1 of chapter 12, Paul is saying, I must be utterly mad or foolish to be speaking like this. He's a humble man. He doesn't like drawing attention to himself. I guess you might say he's a bit like a husband in a shop who's been asked to carry his wife's handbag. There is just no comfortable way to do that. It doesn't matter how you try to hold it. You just feel completely awkward. You can't say no, can you? You have to do it. And, and I, I get the sense that that's something of the embarrassment and the awkwardness that Paul, in a sense, is feeling. But he does it nevertheless. And in this passage, tells us why. It's to reset the thinking of the Corinthian church that is still that little, despite the repentance, still that little bit in danger of being dragged away, led astray. And at the same time, he does it to cut down the fakery of the super apostles and humble them. And as he does, he teaches us two crucial points, and this is how I'm going to frame this sermon today. Number one, the gospel of God is sufficient to maintain your devotion to Christ. That's what we see in chapter 11, verses 1 to 21. The gospel of God 
is sufficient to maintain your devotion to Christ. Let me show you how I got that. Well, in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 11, Paul states his live concern for this Corinthian church. The church can still be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He says in verse 3, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The answer's in the text. Now notice from that exactly what a church is. A church family is promised to Christ. It's the imagery of betrothal from back then, or we would call it engagement nowadays. The church is the bride-to-be. Jesus, the glorious groom, and Paul is acting like the father of the bride. He really loves this daughter church of his, if you like, a church that he has planted. He has promised her to Christ and is jealously protective of her to ensure that in all the things that he says, all the things he teaches, all the things this church does, she only has eyes for Jesus Christ. Now, the problem is churches can be led astray by flirtatious suitors. Earlier in this book, Paul exposed them as these super apostles. They, they don't preach, they peddle, they don't love you, they actually only love themselves. But the, the problem with these guys is it's hard to see that. They're such convincing rhetoricians. They, they sound like the kind of thing, you know, they sound like the kind of person who whispers, I love you from the other side of the bed while he's cheating. In verse 3, Paul says, no wonder because they're just like Satan, cunning. And the church, like Eve, deceived. Now, the church in Corinth had repented and turned back to Paul, but he tells them, if you don't tell these false teachers where to go, it's over. You will end up putting up with a different Jesus being preached. You will welcome a different spirit. You will welcome a different gospel. And if you're a church and you do any of that, the wedding is off. You're not getting in because it's contrary to the true gospel, the only gospel that saves the gospel concerning the only Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, in saying this, Paul not only points out the danger of false teaching, he actually underlines the sufficiency of the gospel we've believed. Whether we're a 212-year-old church or a brand new plant, the Jesus that we know, the spirit we've received, the gospel we have believed, together are everything we need to, to devote ourselves to Christ and to his service. Truly, the gospel of God is sufficient to maintain our love for Jesus, our devotion to him, the kind of devotion that's worked out in our actions. Preach this to yourself every day. Remind one another of this every time we gather, because the dangers that befell them back then are still around today. Well, in verses 5 to 21, Paul pinpoints the reason why churches can be led astray. And it turns out it's not just a problem with flirtatious suitors. It's churches themselves, in a sense, through carelessness, that they can leave themselves open to this kind of deception. The Corinthians had. 
And Paul points out two ways that they've done that. In verses 5 to 12, there's the first one. They've ended up, they've been judging by appearances. So they've discredited Paul because he wasn't a trained speaker. That's verses 5 and 6. And by that, he means, you know, he's not a fancy TED-talking rhetorician. Paul says, I know I'm not. Um, I know I haven't been trained, but since when has that been a qualification for apostleship? He reaffirms, I do have knowledge, though. You can detect a, a hint of sarcasm in that. Knowledge of God and of his gospel. Paul says, we've made this perfectly clear to you in every way. In other words, to underline bold italics, it's content that counts, not form. And you know this, Corinth, Paul says. It's for that reason that he is, as verse 5 says, not the least inferior to these super apostles. And then we find out in verses 7 to 12 that they've discredited Paul because he wasn't an expensive speaker either. Now, the Corinthians back then, it was the kind of culture where they liked to flash their cash as a means of feeding their own sense of self-importance. Have you ever felt like that when you've maybe bought something expensive or, or, or been in an expensive car or something like that? I remember feeling like that once, um, getting out of a Mercedes ML, high-spec class in the driveway of a five-star Fairmont Hotel in St. Andrews. I wasn't even driving it. My brother-in-law was, but I got out acting like a peacock, you know, boastfully like, I just got out my ML, you know? It was ridiculous. It wasn't even his. He was a Mercedes used car salesman. It was absolutely ridiculous. Anyway, just shows you, I had to catch myself from this kind of, even this weird, dumb sense of feeling impressive it's utter foolishness. Well, for the Corinthians, they were doing all that kind of boasty stuff and everything they did, the things they bought, the people they had around to their house, the tables they spread, all that kind of stuff. And they absolutely detested the fact. They could not get over the fact that Paul did not charge them a penny for his preaching. There were people who were doing what the prime ministers, ex-prime ministers do nowadays. You know, get 100 grand for a 12-minute speech somewhere. Some of these guys on the circuit in Corinth and in Rome were making a fortune from their public speaking. But for Paul to preach for free, even while re receiving support, as the text says, from poor people in the north, while still doing some manual labor, well, to the Corinthians, that was yuck. But Paul says, was it a sin? Was I doing something wrong in that? No, it wasn't. In fact, it was for your good. It was, it was so that I could cut the ground from under those who did charge you and show you that they are not what I am, a true apostle. For that reason, verse 5, I'm not in the least bit inferior. See what Paul's doing here? They've been judging by appearances. And that's one of the ways they can be led astray. But they can also be led astray because they are, well, easily deceived is what I've put here. But you could add the word gullible. In verses 13 to 21, that's what you read about. They, they just, as a church, have not been alert to the dangers of false teachers and their teaching. Now, you can't read long in the New Testament any of the letters without hearing some warning about false teaching. You're like, oh, here's the false teaching chat again. Why is that? because it was so prevalent back then as it is today. Now, these super apostles, though, they were like actors, Paul says. They were masquerading, like role-playing for their own benefit. 
And Paul says churches like Corinth should be able to identify people when they're wearing masks. Jesus taught us how, truly, by their fruit. You shall know them. Their actions will prove it. And as Paul says here, their actions will actually prove what their deeds deserve. It's this very bracketed, careful way of saying judgment. Look at their actions. Verse 19 lists some of the actions that in the end deserve judgment. Exploitation, arrogance, abuse. Do you know, I used to read about that bit about, you know, putting on airs and slapping you in the face. Oh, Paul's just being metaphorical here. He's kind of trying to use a picture of enslavement to talk about what some bad false teachers do in their churches. But after some of the stories that have been out in the last few years about historic abuse in the life of a church, I wouldn't be surprised if they were, if the Corinthian super apostles were actually causing physical harm. And they were putting up with it. Verse 21 is absolutely dripping with sarcasm. To my shame, I admit we were too weak for that. As if to say, is that really what gospel strength looks like? Now, what causes this kind of deception, gullibility, if you like? Well, it could be whole church gullibility. You know, we're, we can be too naive to the danger to check, or it can be whole church inattentiveness. You know, even just to coast in our discipleship can result in our being conned. But let's not be deceived. And do as Paul encourages, in a sense, to see what lies behind the mask. Indeed, I don't know, I grew up watching Scooby-Doo. Let's see who's behind the mask. Rip it off. There's Satan himself. Surprise, surprise. Different Jesus. Different spirit. Different gospel. Different gospel deeds. Come on. Does that sound more like the son of God or a son of hell? Friends, whether we're at Charlotte Chapel or Christchurch Queensferry, let's not make the same mistakes. It's really not that hard to be deceived. The world is a flirt and Satan is its pimp. It is, we must not be duped. And please don't judge leaders by appearances. Those who labor in preaching and teaching should be judged according to the godly principles that we see Paul outline earlier in the book in the likes of chapter 4. Are they setting forth the truth plainly? Is the content Bible-centered, Christ-exalting? Content counts, but is it backed up by godly behavior? And please don't judge by cultural values. If we value what our culture values, we are at the mercy of our own gullibility. But friends, the gospel is what shapes us in everything. Let that be true for us. And let me say especially to our friends at Christchurch Queens Ferry, the gospel of God is not only sufficient to maintain your devotion to Christ, it's sufficient to maintain your defense of the church. Love him with all you've got and guard yourself and the gospel that's been entrusted to you with the exact same determination. Actually, there's a key lesson in this for Adam and David as elders in Christchurch Queens Ferry too. This, the, the call in this passage for you guys is to love the local church family at Christchurch Queens Ferry with a godly jealousy. 
The best thing you can do to do that is to talk about her groom all the time. Talk about Christ's love, his grace, his cross, his resurrection, and grow in your study of the content of that gospel day by day yourselves. And let it fuel your own hearts. Knowledge without devotion will lead to a cold, dead orthodoxy. That is not the way of a pastor. And devotion without knowledge will lead to irrational instability. That's not the way of the pastor either. Truth and love go hand in hand. That's the gospel way. So that's point one. The gospel of God is sufficient to maintain our devotion to Christ. What encouragement. Number two, the grace of God is sufficient to maintain your strength in service of Christ. In verse 21 through to 12.4, this is where Paul actually begins his boasting. And what does he boast in? Well, first of all, he boasts in his sufferings, not his successes. This is what makes it the brag to end all brags. You know, if the first section was illustrated by an engagement, this section is illustrated by a CV or a LinkedIn profile. Uh, Caesar Augustus, back in the day, set the pattern. His uh, res gesti was written boastfully on the stone in, his, uh, in front of his mausoleum, and it basically became the template for all kinds of Greco-Roman boasting, much like the kind the super apostles included in their CVs. Now, what does Paul include in his, though? Well, in verses 22 to 23, you've got his credentials. You know, the super super apostles had claimed superiority over Paul on account of their Jewishness and their calling as servants of Christ. But Paul says, hang on a minute. I am too a Jew, a Hebrew. I'm a pure-blood Jew. And as for service, Paul says, and I can't believe I'm about to say this because this is absolute crazy talk, but I am more. I was going to say, I imagine him biting his tongue at the temptation to say, yeah, where were you? Has the risen Jesus ever appeared to you, big guy? No, but I wouldn't think he would say that. He certainly wouldn't use the phrase big guy at the end. But as credentials go, Paul is in service of Christ. It's a good start. What about achievements, though? What do you expect Paul to boast in here? I mean, if he, was a, if he was a basic bragger, he'd say, well, I'm a divinely inspired author, the pen in the hand of God the Holy Spirit. If he was a one-upmanship bragger, he'd say, oh, super apostles, you've pastored a couple of churches, have you? Well, I'm a divinely empowered church planter establishing new churches in Asia Minor, Greece, and Italy, and some of whom have planted churches already. And I guess you could say, I've led the evangelization of Southern Europe, which, by the way, is going to influence the evangelization of the world. He might have said that, and he could have, but he doesn't. The only achievements he lists in service of Christ are his sufferings, his hardships, the things that have caused him grief and pain, the things that exhaust him, the things that burden him. Verse 23b to 25, keep your eye on the text as we scroll down it. Here are his physical sufferings. Who includes jail time on the CV? 
He's been in jail more times than the super apostles, suffered actual pain for preaching what he preached from all directions, Jews, Romans, crowds. He literally had the scars to prove it. Verses 26 and 27 tells us that this suffering includes emotional suffering. He's faced danger at every turn. And as a result, anxiety levels would have been high. Ministry was not plain sailing for Paul. Think how exhausting it must have been to face danger, to be looking over his shoulder all the time. Verses 28 and 29 tell us that he suffered really, I guess you could say, spiritually in service of Christ. Interestingly, of all the afflictions, this is the most painful for him. Besides everything else, verse 28, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? See what Paul's saying? That if, if those he loved and pastored suffered, he suffered. If they were in danger, he was concerned. He was in prayer. If they were in need, he would do what he could to get to them to strengthen them or else send them help. If someone fell into sin, he was deeply concerned for their souls. What pastoral care that is. And then in verses 30 to 33 tell us that actually in service of Christ, to add to all, he suffered great shame. This is what this little bit about the wall and the siege in Damascus is all about. Uh, in the Greco-Roman world, an award like the Victoria Cross was awarded to the first soldier over a wall into a besieged city. It was a mark of exceptional valor. But Paul was probably the first man ever to boast of being lowered over the wall out of a besieged city like a fish in a basket. He's humbling himself before them, boasting in his sufferings, not his successes. Do you see that? Do you see what it does when Paul does this? He's lifting up the virtue of humility and pointing out to us the great dangers of pride. He's also highlighting for us that any service of Christ, whether you're a pastor or a member of a church, will involve suffering and hardship and difficulty of some kind. It's not a cruise ship. It feels more like a battle. It's not a walk in the park. It's like running a gauntlet. Paul is parodying the boasting of the day to turn it on its head and draw attention away from himself, actually, to point to the, the sufferings. But why? Well, we'll get to that. But in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 12, show that Paul's boasting doesn't stop with these sufferings and not, uh, uh, not successes, but sufferings. He then boasts about his weaknesses, not this exceptional experience that he's had that he relays in verses 1 to 4. In verses 
2 to 4, Paul recounts this heavenly vision in which he went to heaven and heard these inexpressible things. Now, this is the stuff of bestsellers to heaven and back by the Apostle Paul. You would buy it. Yeah, maybe we'd buy it. But he can barely bring himself to talk about the experience. He can't, he's really struggling to even put himself there in the first person. He talks about himself in the, the third person, although in verse 7, Paul reveals that this man that he's talking about is in fact himself. And he would be totally fine to drop this into conversation, as verse 6 says, because actually, if he said it all in the right way, he'd be telling the truth, because this actually did happen to him. He had a vision or an experience of God, I guess you could say much like the apostle John did, that we hear of in Revelation 1 and 2. But he won't boast about this vision. This is the point of this. He won't boast in this. Why? Well, verse 6, because people would think more of him than is warranted by what he says or does. He saw in the vision, in other words, the possibility that people might esteem him too much. And that can't be for a servant of Christ who wants all attention and focus to be deflected to Jesus. He's the one that we need to focus on all the time. The second reason is that he would rather boast about his thorn. That's what he talks about in verses 5 to 10. This is the weakness that he has. Paul boasts in his weaknesses. Look with me at verse 7. To keep me from being conceited in regards to this amazing vision that he had, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, what do we know about this thorn? Not a lot, and that's fine, apart from what the text says, so we don't need to speculate. Flesh would indicate something physical, but its cause is ultimately spiritual. Who caused it? Well, it's a messenger of Satan, but it's given by God. There's something to chew on over lunch. God was responsible, in other words, for both the vision and the thorn, the experience and the humbling. And basically providing Paul with this supernatural insight to strengthen him, along with a supernatural blight to humble him. Both working together to create the kind of resilience and determination and dependence that the Apostle Paul needed for a ministry of such magnitude. I really hope you see that. Paul didn't like this thorn, and it was perfectly okay for him to pray that it would be removed, but the answer came back as a no three times, though not without explanation. Look with me at verse 9. But he, the Lord, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is an ever-flowing kindness to us. It was grace that brought us the salvation that we enjoy, and it is grace that sustains us 
every day in the service he employs us in, of being the people of God, of speaking this gospel into one another's lives for our building up, for our equipping, for doing works of service, and for telling everybody out there. And Christ's response to a suffering, pleading Paul was, remember my grace. It's enough to sustain you in your service. And remember the point. It's how I'm going to display my power best through you. How would you feel if Jesus said that to you, friends? Because I guarantee you're thinking like me of some of the hardships and difficulties that you've experienced in your life. Jesus says, remember my grace. It's enough to sustain you. And remember the point. It's how I'm going to display my power through you. Put your eyes on verse 9 for me as I read it. Look with me. Therefore, I will boast. All the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Paul's reticence in boasting is gone. No sense of playing the fool here, for he's laying it out in uncomfortable terms because no one boasts like this. No one boasts in their weaknesses or their sufferings or their hardships. He says, I'm the glad recipient of God's grace and happy for him to put his power on display in my weaknesses and all the sufferings that he's just categorized for us so that Christ's power may what? What does the text say? Rest on me. In other words, I can keep going and whatever comes my way because his power is at work in me, because he's with me. Wow. Bringing me peace and that peculiar kind of joy in suffering, despite everything else. Verse 10, put your eyes on it for me. That's why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am, say the word, strong. Friends, the weakness that you feel so keenly is not a disqualifier for you in regards to living for Christ. It's, it's the platform 
for Christ to display his power. Christchurch Queensferry, do you feel strong for this task? Planting a church, making disciples, growing the church, planting another one, another few. Do we feel strong? Well, if you do feel strong, actually, that probably is a problem. (laughs) It'd be better if you felt weak. Feel your insufficiency. Feel your inadequacy. Feel your fears about fumbled speech as you try and just relate to people. Never mind, share the gospel with people. Feel your concerns about living imperfectly in ways that you feel, oh, my life is just so inconsistent with the cross, then let let those weaknesses humble you to dust and pray with hearts open to God in neediness and dependence. Confess your weakness, plead his power, and then watch God work. This is the wisdom of Christ. This is what this book of 2 Corinthians is all about. It is the wisdom of the cross by which we ought to live. Now do you see why preaching a different Jesus, receiving a different spirit, receiving a different gospel is so catastrophic? Because it all takes away from Christ. Whereas Paul, our weaknesses, your weaknesses, take us to him, to that cross, where in those moments of utter, what seems like utter foolishness to the world, the wisdom of God hangs on a cross for your judgment and for mine, so that we might tell those of you here who are not Christians, Christ died for our sins once for all to bring us to God. There's nothing you can do except say, you're right, I'm weak, I'm so sorry for my sin, please forgive me on account of Christ's blood and let me be a part of this. Let me be devoted to you all the way to the wedding day and let me travel there Trusting that your grace is sufficient to maintain my strength in service of you until you come. Amen? Let's pray. Please take a moment in the quietness just to pray your own prayers of response. And I'll lead us in a prayer shortly. Father, we praise you that this gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is coming, his living, his dying, his rising is sufficient to maintain our devotion to you. Please, by your spirit, through this gospel, from your word, spoken to one another, let it fuel our affections, cause cold hearts 
to burst again into flames of love for you and cause fired hearts to rejoice in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let it be lived out not just in our singing, but in our daily devotion to you. And thank you for providing the grace that we need for living every day for you, for the sufficiency of it. You're so gracious. You are so kind. And we love you and adore you and pray all these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.